0: Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 332. I tell people all the time, try to understand what it is you want to do and find a way to do it. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews
1: with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and interior, is with a car cover? I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. 2015 marks Covercraft's 50th anniversary. They've manufactured premium quality exterior and interior covers here in the United States with a reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit with over 80,000 patterns and growing. You can choose from dozens of fabric options and accessories all designed and carefully sewn for your special vehicle. Made in the USA Covercraft is the right choice. I've protected my special rides with their covers for over 40 years and you should too. Learn more today at Covercraft.com Hello automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Ken Gross. Ken, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Absolutely. Ready to go. All right. Great to have you here. Ken Gross is an award-winning automotive journalist and has contributed to almost every car magazine you've ever enjoyed reading. He was the executive director of the Peterson Automotive Museum and has served as guest curator for numerous other prestigious museums around the country. Along with the exhibition catalogs, Ken has written 15 automotive books and has been a chief class judge for 25 years at the Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance, and he's also served on their selection committee. He's judged numerous other Concours events across the country, from Amelia Island to Rodeo Drive. Ken, I've told our listeners just a little bit about your incredible career. Would you take a moment and share some more about your career, your passion for automobiles, and your love for riding?
0: I'd be glad to do that. Uh, I really feel very, very lucky. I'm kind of living my dream. I've been interested in cars since I was uh, 13 years old, and I wondered for years as I worked as an advertising copywriter and worked in marketing, how do you get out of this um, and really become what I wanted to do, uh, which was to write for an automobile magazine. I, I worked for several ad agencies they never had a car account. I mean, it really looked like a like a dead end, and I had a very lucky break that um, <clears throat> I can talk about with some of your questions later. Sure. And it started me on my way, or I could, I could do it now if you want.
1: Well, we'll leave it for for a little later, but, you know, uh, for somebody like you who has, is leaving, living your dream and so many people who know about you and have read you over the years, I've read things you've written since I was a kid, so. Um, keep going a little bit about how you transferred out of the ad agencies into just an immense career around automobiles.
0: Well, I um, I started buying automotive books and magazines. So uh, when I was literally 13 years old, started with Road and Track and and Hot Rod magazine, and then bought a Bugatti book from Robert Bentley, and I was very very interested. And I, as I mentioned, I I worked in an advertising agency in New York City. I wrote. Ad copy for Crest toothpaste and uh, Crispy Critters cereal, and so <laughs> forth. I mean, it was it was about as far away from automobiles as as you could be. But I was very inspired by Ken Purdy and his book Kings of the Road. And I mm-hmm. bought the only car that Purdy had in his book that I could afford. I bought a 1934 Morgan three wheeler out of a road and track classified ad that I. Uh, the car was in in the UK. First time I actually saw it was when it arrived at the uh, docks in New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> I looked at it, and uh, there were moments when I thought, "What have I done with this?" Yeah. But it led me to a number of things. I mean, it got me into the um, the Morgan Club in a big way because most of their members had four wheeled Morgans. Oh yeah, and I got to meet a lot of wonderful uh, wonderful Morgan people. And I also got to meet a fellow named Rich Taylor, who at that time was the managing editor of Car and Driver magazine. He mm-hmm. was doing a story and wanted to photograph my car. So he came up to Ryan, New York, and by that time, I had um, done quite a bit of restoration on the on the Morgan. I'd rebuilt the engine. It was, when I got it, it was uh, certainly not correct in terms of details. And I'd, I'd spent a lot of time working on it. I like working on cars, working in a gas station in high school. I've always tried to do it as much maintenance as possible well rich came and he looked at my car and he was impressed and he took some photos but he was also impressed with the library i had at the time and he asked me if i would be if i'd consider being a copy editor he was leaving car and driver to go work for special interest autos as the editor and i didn't know what a copy editor was so (laughs) i i said what is a copy editor He explained someone to fact check and proofread and Um, uh, all of his he said I'm not an old car expert but obviously you've got a lot of experience here so I did I said I'll I'll do this and uh, I'll help you but I'd really like to write a story and write a lot of stories I had actually sent letters to road and Track and Car and Driver, and had uh, a bunch of, as they say, rejection slips. You know, mm-hmm. notes back saying thank you, but we're really not interested. Yeah. I wrote to Bernard Kaye, the very famous writer at the time. He wrote back and enthusiastically, but uh, that didn't get me a job. But so he was rich, and I'm on the threshold of something. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And so I, I did proofread a couple of issues of Special Interestados, and then he said, I need a story about a 1949 Buick Sedanette could you write it? I said, sure. And I, I did. I wrote the story, uh, researched it, wrote a, uh, the way they used to do their drive reports and special interest autos. And Rich read it. And he said, uh, "Do you have some help with this? And I said, no, I, I wrote it myself. He said, well, it's really good. Let's do some more. And that was my, my start as a writer.
1: <laughs> it's such a wonderful story. I've heard that from so many journalists and editors who've been on this show that they just put their work out there and they kept putting it out there. And that's how they finally got their foot through that door. And- and doing their dream job. I think that's absolutely fantastic. As we continue on your journey, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote. It's one of those things that has been instrumental in forming your life and your success. You're a man of words, so hopefully you have something really inspiring for us here. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Ken, take the wheel.
0: My uncle Leonard, who died uh, in his 90s uh, two years ago, owned a jazz nightclub in Boston. And he always said, make your business your hobby. Make your hobby your business. Mm. And he did. He loved jazz, and he spent his days with uh, the top jazz musicians in those days, Dizzy Gillespie and The Loneliness Monk and Woody Herman and so forth in his club. And he gave Jay Leno his start. And I, I would look at him, and because and, I worked there as a busboy and a waiter and so forth, and he'd say all the time, you know, you've got to make your business and your hobby the same thing. And I kept thinking, how can I do that? Well, I was able to do that thanks to Rich Taylor and an opportunity that came on uh, that I was able to replicate with other magazines. So when you think about it, my uncle used to say this all the time, if your hobby is your business, you're always doing something you like, except when you're sleeping, and everybody likes to sleep.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, very wise uncle. I think that's fantastic. I've heard that from so many guests here. It's kind of like that quote from Henry Ford about if you love what you do, you won't work a day in your life. So uh, very very astute, and I'm so happy you found that path in your life to go down. Would you share a story with me that instigated your passion for cars? You talk about that first kind of fun car being that Morgan, but is there a pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were a car guy?
0: No, so much yeah much earlier than that. Truly, I, I when I was um, somewhere between 12 and 13, my next door neighbor. Uh, was a fellow named Bruce Durkey. This was in Swampscott, Massachusetts, north of Boston. Mm -hmm. And Bruce's family owned Marshmallow Fluff, Durkey Mower. And the kids in the neighborhood all thought that that was really cool. I mean, imagine being the owner of Marshmallow Fluff. But (laughs) I didn't care much for Marshmallow Fluff. What I liked was that Bruce owned a a Robin's Egg Blue MGTC. I think it was a 49. It had wire wheels. And I thought that car was just fabulous. I mean, I would watch him driving down the street with the wheels flickering, and uh, I got up my courage and went down there and introduced myself as a thirteen-year-old. I was—I was already his delivery, his newspaper delivery boy, so he knew who I was. Yeah. And I just said, "I'll do anything to get a ride in this car. I'll help you clean it, you know, whatever it takes." And he was kind enough to uh, to let me do that and get and give me a ride occasionally. And of course, that car had uh, right-hand drive. So not only was it the excitement of riding in a sports car for the first time, but I was I, I was in the in what I would have called the driver's seat. Yeah. Oh yeah. The left, the side, left side. side, sure. And and he was a good driver and he was enthusiastic and he he kind of understood that uh, there was something happening here. So not long after I got my first MG ride. I was in Sanders Drugstore, and there was the, the May 1954 issue of Road and Track which I still have along with every other issue and mm-hmm. and I bought it and I brought it home and I was so excited to show it to my father and say um know, dad look at this and he said you, he looked at it and he said you've um, you've spent your week's allowance on a magazine you know <laughs> you're going to have to learn to be a lot more careful uh, in the future you'll waste your money <laughs> he was never he was a wonderful guy he was not particularly interested in cars so um, that was a, a kind of a crushing moment for, for Yeah, I started buying all these other magazines and uh, reading and thinking right from the beginning, boy, what fun it must be to work for a magazine and have these cars all the time.
1: That's when the flame was lit. Well, my father's first sports car was an MGTC. So I share that. I remember riding around in that from the time I was five years old and how much fun it was to be sitting on the left side. In fact, even had a spare steering wheel that he would hand to me. And when we would drive, I would pretend like I was driving and we'd pull up next to people and they'd look over at this little kid and go, what on earth is going on? And we'd always have a great laugh about that. So wonderful. Ken, what I'd love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down. You've been a writer, a journalist. You've done so many things with your life, very entrepreneurial in spirit. I'd love for you to share with us a huge challenge or even better, a great failure that you faced along the way in your career, but the best part of this has to do with how did you overcome it and what did you learn from that situation?
0: Well, it's not going to be an automotive challenge, I'm afraid. Um, And to me, um, one of the most difficult challenges I had, uh, but it it has helped me, it's served me in very good stead for a lot of things in my life. In uh, 1966, my draft board consisted of one of my neighbors and another another lady I knew. Mm-hmm. Reminded me that with draft calls going up, um, I would have to make a decision. And after thinking about it a little bit, I decided to uh, apply. To go to Navy OCS Officer Candidate School and be a naval officer. Mm-hmm. It was totally the opposite of anything I'd done. I wasn't even that interested in boats. I, <laughs> I, you know, the Navy recruiting ads were cool. I could still sing the song, and the thought of foreign travel was intriguing. And the, and Vietnam seemed a long way away. So I, I went to. Um, long story short, I went to Navy OCS. I became a, a a newly minted ensign. I went to a number of Navy schools. And I found myself on a uh, gasoline tanker as the chief engineer. Um, I didn't know a great deal about diesel engines or, or even managing a department of nearly 30 guys, many of whom were older than I, than I was. Uh, and we, uh, this was a little, little ship. We were able to transit the Pacific. And within a year or so, I found myself operating in the Quaviat River, which is the river that separates North and South Vietnam.
1: Yes. We Ooh.
0: had a, uh, we had a cargo of aviation uh, fuel uh, 115 145 avgas we carried jet fuel jp4 fuel and uh, and diesel fuel of course and we were operating uh, in a really dangerous area we were subject to rocket fire and uh, in april of uh, 1968 uh, we were we were straddled and hit by um, rocket rounds we had some ca- some fatalities and the ship caught on fire now the last place you ever want to be is a tanker on fire and, Yes. Uh, my job as a damage control officer and chief engineer was to, um, to fight the fires and organize everyone to do that and uh, you know you never know how you're going to react in an extremist situation until you're in it sure. and people always wonder well uh, I was able to keep a cool head keep things uh, under control get the fires out get the uh, and uh, the fact that the Navy saw fit to award a combat declaration for that is secondary to my thinking that in, in a really difficult situation, I, I had what it took. And subsequently, you know, I came back. I became a civilian. I went on job interviews. People would say, "You know, aren't you nervous about that?" I'd say, "You have no idea <laughs>
1: what nervous uh, is."
0: Easier this is than when you're in a situation where people are shooting at you. You know. Yes. So, so it it, it just reminded me that I had the, f- the fundamental courage to deal with adversity, and I've I've never forgotten that.
1: Wow. Well, I appreciate you taking us on a very personal journey there and thank you for your service to this country. Wow. What a scary situation, but, uh, perseverance, uh, training, uh, bravery, whatever you want to call it, combination of everything, but, uh, you did it. So I'm glad you made it back fine. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share one of those career aha moments. I like to say it's a time when the headlights came on and illuminated your way for a new direction that you had in your career path. Tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success.
0: Well, I was working as a freelance writer. I had been for quite uh, quite a while. And my friend Bruce Meyer, was the consummate car enthusiast, oh, yeah. was one of the directors of the Peterson Automotive Museum. And they were looking for a director for the Peterson. I um, had never worked for a museum. I mean, like most of us, I've been to museums and thought they were neat. And I had not been to the Peterson. And he said, look, um, we were living at the time in... Uh, In Virginia, and he said, you know, we're looking for someone with business experience, which you have, and with um, uh, automotive knowledge, which you have, Mm -hmm. and we just haven't found the right person, so would you come out and interview? And I interviewed with um, the entire board, Kevin Scherer, who is the chairman of Amgen, was the uh, head of the board of directors of the L.A. Natural History Museum. Bob and and Margie Peterson were there, most of the board members, all sitting around a table. Mm -hmm. And before I went out there, I said to my wife, Trish, you know, um, this would interest me to do, what do you think? And she has a fabulous career of her own, but she said, at the time, she said, you know, I think you should go out there. It could be an interesting opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so there I was with an interview with everybody. You know, it wasn't like doing half an hour with this person and <laughs> yeah. then that. If you do, if you do well, or you move out the door or whatever, they were all in the room. And I decided. I looked at them. I looked at, around the table. I walked through the museum briefly, and I thought this could be really terrific. Don't know if I can do it, but I'm going to answer their questions as though I'm not worried about getting the job. I'm going to give them the most direct, honest answers I can, and let's see what happens. Yeah. Well that, and that's what I did, and at the end of about, about an hour and twenty minutes, they said, um, "Would you step out of the room for a moment we, we would like to talk." And I went out of the room and came back in a few minutes later, and they <laughs> said, "When can you start?" Wow." And I said, wow, I'm, I'm, there's nothing, <laughs> I yeah. didn't know what to say, in a, in a way, and uh, I said, well, I've got to call my wife, which I did, and she said, let's do this, let's, you know, we've always thought, it, we've talked about the fun of living in L.A. and what it would be like, you can do it, you've always done everything you tried, you set out to do, you can do this. Yeah. And uh, and I really enjoyed it for uh, four and a half years, she had a fabulous opportunity with her company, where she's now the uh, president of one foundation and chief operating officer another, and. So we decided to move back east, and uh, I've I've had subsequently many museum opportunities, which maybe we'll talk about, but working at the Peterson, uh, running the Peterson, working with Bob Peterson was a a fabulous experience, and uh, I learned a great deal from him. He was probably the smartest guy I ever knew without... A, as a real formal education he had mm-hmm. he was street smart gutsy he knew how to make decisions and i got to spend a lot of time with him and and watched and learned so all in all it was it was terrific and of course it gave me the background as a museum director to uh, to do the, the exhibits that i now do for fine art museum
1: oh fantastic what a wonderful opportunity Now we've had terry Cargus from the peterson museum on this show bruce myers been on this show we've had the head of other museums around the country on Karja yeah. and uh what a fun opportunity a great museum they're going through such a wonderful transformation right now with the redesign no, they are. Uh, my
0: wife and I were out there in January uh, looking at the inside of a totally gutted yeah. building, uh, and I'd spent you know nearly five years in that building, and I saw some things I'd never seen because, you know, there were walls up in those days. And, sure, um, I'm, I think uh, <clears throat> I'm very excited for them, and their December opening, I think, is going to be uh, a barn
1: burner. Oh, okay. yeah. It's going to be spectacular. Now, I assume you've had many really proud moments in your career over the years, but is there one in particular you could share with us that Really stood out for you.
0: Well, one of them uh, was at the Peterson of all things. Uh, you know, we did. I worked with Leslie Kendall, who's a fabulous curator. Yes, he's
1: been on the show as well.
0: <laughs> right. And we would supplement one another's automotive knowledge. We overlap in some ways, in some other ways. You know, we we each have different interests, but we decided that um, to do a lowrider exhibition. Uh, Lowriding is a phenomenon that pretty much started in East Los Angeles, as you and your listeners probably know, but there had never really been a a consummate lowrider exhibition, and some of our members and board members and others cautioned against doing this. They said, oh, you're going to need metal detectors, you're going to need... This is the, the wrong thing to do. But Leslie and I met with a number of lowrider club uh, people, mm-hmm. and uh, the more mm-hmm. we talked to them, the more we, we shared their excitement and enthusiasm for what they did. It was very different from, uh, say, hot rodding and customizing, so much so that in one uh, one meeting, I remember we were working with a guy whose uh, street nickname was Cartoon. He, he was covered with tattoos, and his car had all these drawings um, that were in the door jams and under the hood and so forth. and at one point, I, I, we asked him about that, and he said, you know, I can roll up my sleeves and show you my art, or I can keep them down, you can't see it. Same way with my car. And he seemed to know a great deal about it, and one of our techniques in those days was to take a pull-out quote or two and stencil them on the walls. So I said to him, Cartoon, what, uh, if you were summing up low-riding in a sentence or two that we could put on the wall here, what is this all about? I said. From my point of view, I'm—I've always been a hot rod guy, fast cars, chrome, speed, um, Fords. I said, but you guys are Chevys and gold and uh, you know gold trim and velour and and going slow. And I said, so so, what's it all about? Why do you do this? Without hesitating, he looked up. He said, "We do it for the chicks, man. We do it for the chicks." <laughs> 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 I thought, wow. Okay, and uh, so that certainly was one of the one of the elements that we put in, but opening night where we had over a thousand people, many of the lowrider uh, crowd, women were in these gowns, guys were in these pachuco suits, Yeah, um, I mean, it was just extraordinary, and I I looked around and, you know, there was not a hint of a problem, and I picked up the microphone and, you know, and, and did the whole introduction in Spanish, uh, which people didn't know I could do, and... Uh, and board members came up and people clapped me on the back and Leslie too, of course, and, and just saying you were right, you guys. This was this was brilliant and uh, and it was fabulous. It was fun.
1: Well, you know, I hear this over and over again. And cars is the whole culture is about people. And the great thing about cars is it brings people together from all backgrounds of life. Doesn't matter your politics, your religion, whatever. It it's a binding thing and. I think it's great that you did that show. It proved to everybody that, you know what, yeah, we're all just car guys, and some of us are just after the chicks, man. So (laughs) that's pretty cool. (laughs) Let's have a little bit of fun here. You talked about that Morgan, and maybe that's the answer to this question, but I would love to know what was your first really special vehicle, and if you could share a memory that you have with that car.
0: Well, it wasn't the Morgan, I'm going to tell you. I mean, the Morgan was cool, but uh, at a Morgan Club meet a few years uh, after I had the three-wheeler, uh, somebody showed up in a Ferrari Lusso. I'd never thought about Ooh. Ferraris before. And <laughs> a this, pretty car. This Lusso yeah. kind of burbled in, you know, this very sexy car. Yeah. And uh, and I, I wrote about it years later, and I said, this was like Sophia Loren walking through a garden party with a group of English schoolgirls. <laughs> I, mean, this, this, I immediately went home and sold the Morgan, sold my motorcycles, Sold the Ford Woody I had. Sold everything in the garage. Took out a um, uh, second mortgage and started looking for Ferraris. And mm. I bought a 275 GTB.
1: Oh, nice! A
0: long nose, torque tube, six carb, um, silver Berlinetta, and cool. it was the best car I've ever had. It'll probably the best car I can even imagine. And uh, but I was very nervous about it because it was represented quite a bit of money in those days. Sure. Not even a tenth of what they're worth now. Oh, That's yeah. Not even <laughs> So I said to Mark Halber, who uh, helped arrange the sale, I said, "Mark, you know, I'm spending a lot of money on this uh, this car. In fact, it's almost as much as I paid for my first house. Do you think there's anything that could happen that would change or alter the values? I don't want to lose a lot of money." Right. And he said, "No, nothing short of an entire social collapse will change <laughs> change this." And I, I think he was he was right. I owned the car for. Uh, Almost nine years. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, it became the casualty of a divorce. But uh, but while I had it, I drove it a lot. I know a lot of Ferrari owners who are either they don't drive their cars or they clean them all the time. Right. I mean, we drove up to Boston, my son and I. We, I drove to a lot of uh, events in it. I love driving, and I like getting up early in the morning and going up. 287, running all the way to Morristown. That was it. <laughs>
1: wonderful, wonderful cars. Oh, what fun. What fun. Yeah, that's a pretty special first special car, for sure. It's the first time somebody said the word Lusso to that question, so very cool. <laughs> <laughs> is there a vehicle that you've sold in your past, and, and maybe it's that car, that you really wish you could have back? Is that the one?
0: Nope. No? Um, okay. The one is my um, my, my Calwood replica Mille Ducati motorcycle. I've owned a lot of motorcycles. Oh my The last one I I sold was this Ducati, which I I bought new um, from Ghost Motorcycle Sales on Long Island, and sold it once uh, to the late Bud Lyon, who then sold it back to me. And uh, two years ago, I. I thought, you know, maybe it's time. Uh, friends have had motorcycle accidents and so forth. And uh, the minute I and of course, my wife Trish and I had our first date on this motorcycle. She'd never ridden on a bike we met. I said, "Hey, I'm going to ride." Oh wow! Um, it was love at first ride. Uh, but <laughs> and I re- I've regretted selling it ever since. I've even been looking for uh, for another Ducati. So. Yeah, I sh- I don't know what I was thinking. I should uh, I should have kept it. Oh, yeah. Working.
1: What a special bike. I had a Ducati Monster. Nothing as special as the bike you had, but I always loved riding that bike. It was just uh was just so much fun. They just make great noises. Is there a current project you're working on right now that really has you excited and fired up?
0: Yes, I'm doing a uh, an exhibit for the um the first center for the visual arts in Nashville. We're calling it Bellissima, the Italian automotive renaissance, 1946 to 1975, and it'll be Italian cars and Italian bikes, uh, two of my favorite subjects. My wife is Italian, so I mean I get immersed in it anyway. <laughs> yes. But uh, we did our Teco cars at the first uh, in 2013. It was a big success, and they wanted something. You know, and now for something completely different. So sure. we're doing uh, post-war Italian cars, sleek, swoopy, noisy, fabulous Italian cars. We'll have Ferraris and Alfas and Maseratis and some of the unusual things like cheese Italias. So I'm I'm very excited about it, and I'm in the process of writing uh, some of the car essays and also an essay on uh, literally the Italian automotive Renaissance. And it's uh, I think people, if they like the Arteco cars, they'll love these.
1: Oh yeah, when does that exhibit open?
0: It'll open in May of, uh, of next year.
1: Very cool. Uh oh, can't wait. That sounds really, really nice. All right. Now, here's a very introspective question for you, Ken. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? You know,
0: when I saw this question, I thought, <laughs> oh, boy. I gave it a little bit of thought, and I've decided it's a Bentley Continental R. Ooh. A vintage, late 40s-era Bentley. They are elegant, ageless, very capable Quite unique. They didn't make very many of them. Uh, they're a car that, when you look at it quickly, and you, you can see that they are something, but you, you have no idea that this is a 125 mile an hour plus uh, touring car that you could drive from Paris down to Cannes, and and many people did. So, I, I in in the era where people thought fast cars were, were Ferraris, this was a really fast car. That's uh, that the values have held up, and uh, I'd be proud to be a Bentley.
1: There you go. I think so. Very cool. That's the first uh, Bentley on this show, so I love it. So Ken, up next is the last lap, but before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah! sponsor. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Okay, Ken, we're back and we're entering the last lap, and this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some really quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Okay. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received?
0: The best automotive advice was from my dad, who was not... A, um, a car enthusiast at all, he, but he was a very skilled carpenter, and uh, he could do almost anything with tools. And he used to say to me, "Don't even start the job if you don't have the right tools." <laughs> and yes. he's absolutely right. Uh, Many has been the time when I've started to do something or thought about it, and uh, and realized this. Uh, I can spend a long time, or I can go get the right tool. And as recently as last year, my son and I were putting a new top on his. Uh, TJ Jeep and a series of holes had to be punched. And my son was trying to do this thing when I came out with a with a drill, and it, the canvas part was twirling around the drill, the whole thing was all wrong oh, yeah. and I said, "You know you're wasting time. we need the right tool for this and he said, "What do we we don't have a tool?" I said, "Yeah, we do. Your grandfather gave me a punch, a wheeled punch now give me a second or two to find it yeah. and we will we'll get these holes done and sure enough, it took maybe three minutes to find it in the tool drawer and ping 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 pink, we had the <laughs> holes done. I looked up and said, "Thanks, Dad." uh, (laughs) Yeah, very wise (laughs) man,
1: your father. Great advice.
0: (laughs) Would you share one of your personal
1: habits that you believe has contributed to your success over the years?
0: I work insanely hard. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Uh, Almost to a fault. Uh, I mean, I I, I don't, my my belief is no matter how trivial the task, do your absolute best at it. You'll be judged no matter what. Um, And that goes for stories, too, a short story, a long story, an assignment that may not pay as much, I don't know any way except to do my best at it
1: yeah great love it do you have a resource that you think the car Shout listeners would really enjoy
0: uh, that's um
1: i know I, there know, I are many that. <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> well i read i read through that and i thought that um i would give you the name of uh of the fellow who, uh, who built my 32 ford hot rod uh because if you're in, into hot rods at all if your audience is I think the best guy in the country is a quiet, unassuming fellow north of, uh, west of Boston in Lemister, Massachusetts, named Dave Samard. S-I-M-A-R-D. A former engineer who picked up a welding torch one day and decided he could learn how to do this and is absolutely a crackerjack at any, any hot rod task. So, Dave is not. You know, when you, you see the big names out there, uh, and I actually wrote a book about uh, 20 great hot rod chops, but Dave is the first chapter. Uh, he's just fabulous.
1: Very cool. We'll have to give Dave a call, see if I can get him on this show. Sounds like a very talented no, you'd,
0: person. No, you'd enjoy talking to him. Yeah. he really would.
1: Perfect. Great. Perhaps you could make an introduction. How about a book? I know this is going to be an even more difficult question for you, but if there's one book you could share with our listeners, you think they should crack open and read? Well, if they've
0: never read Ken Purdy, it would have to be the Kings of the Road. Um, I bought that book when I was 14. I probably have five or six different editions uh, of it. I still go back and read it. It still works for me. Purdy brought cars to life in a very special way in the fifties. and uh, His words stand up today. You can read it and think, and and your head will be nodding, and you'll marvel at the flow of sentences and the the excitement. So it would be kings of the road. Every car enthusiast should have that book.
1: Yes, Ken's. I enjoy Ken's books as well. It's absolutely fantastic. And listeners, you can find Ken's book listing for Ken Purdy under guest-recommended books on the Cars website and all these great resources at com slash Ken Gross on his show notes page. All right, Ken, we're coming up to the checkered flag. And this last question can be a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, but you can't sell it to buy a bunch of other toys with, so that little trick's off the table. But don't worry about the cost, because today I'm going to write the check. What would that one vehicle be and why?
0: I already have it. It's in my garage. It's a 1932 Ford, all-steel, real car with a supercharged flathead engine. Every part on it that you can see is pre uh, about 1952 and there's a few a few hidden things like an electric fuel pump uh, and a uh, and so forth but it is it was my dream car when i was a kid i wanted a deuce roadster um i spent uh, years collecting parts and Dave Samard brilliantly built it i smile every time i get in it i love to drive it and uh, it's not for sale
1: <laughs> well i'm happy you already have your car that means i don't have to buy anything and I tell you, I've had a few guests on this show that that have their dream cars. You guys are the lucky ones. Boy, that's fantastic. Can you have taken me on a great ride today. I knew you would, and I've really enjoyed your stories. I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Ya listeners and with me. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance and wisdom before you drive off into the sunset in that 32-Deuce Roadster?
0: I tell people all the time, try to understand what it is you want to do. And find a way to do it. I have a son who's a rock musician who was determined to, uh, to succeed in a very, very difficult field. Um, he, we, yeah. I found a way to help him. I think that's true for everyone. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people say, oh, I'm either envious of this or envious of that, or I'd like to do what you do or whatever. And I just say to people, well, what's stopping you? Don't let anything stop you. Find mm-hmm. a way.
1: Find a way. Great advice.
0: What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you? <laughs> I don't have a website. Um, I just have a byline <laughs> here and there. Um, so I, I don't know that there's. Uh, I, I would just say if you see my name on a book, please buy it.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we'll make sure we list some of your many books on your show notes page. But for those of you who haven't read Ken, I don't know if there's anybody out there, but you haven't, pick up one of his books. It's great. I've been reading him since I was a kid, like I said. It's really true. And. Listeners, you can find everything he shared with us today here at CarsYad.com. Just put Ken in the search box and his show notes page will pop right up. Ken, thank you again for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your incredible experiences and journey with our listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road.
0: Thanks, Mark. So long.